Transforming Society podcast is brought to you by Bristol University Press and Policy Press. In episodes covering a wide range of social issues, we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story their research tells and look at the specific ways in which it could transform society for the better. I'm Jess Miles and in this episode my co-presenter Becky Taylor speaks to Chris Ogden from the University of St Andrews about his book The Authoritarian Century. With China taking the lead in many political, economic and technological domains, are we seeing the dawn of an authoritarian era in world politics and the demise of Western democracy? Chris and Becky talk through the ideas in the book, explore future scenarios and illuminate points of hope for democracy and human rights. More information about the book is available from bristoluniversitypress.co.uk. Welcome, Chris, to the Transforming Society podcast. It's great to have you here. Um, For me, it's been an eye-opening and somewhat disturbing experience reading your book. Um, Can you start by giving a quick introduction to the overall theme and message of the book? The the overall theme is just to think about China's rising. If it keeps on rising and dominating the international system, what will that system look like? And the kind kind of driving premise is the US is democratic. It kind of forced those values out into the international system, making the liberal international order. So if China's domestic values are authoritarian and it becomes dominant, pushes those values outwards, would the world become more authoritarian? Would we have an authoritarian world order? So just really try to reflect on that, um, see what it would mean, but also trying to think about rising authoritarianism in other parts of the world and how maybe there's a kind of overall convergence towards authoritarianism that is maybe facilitating that new order coming into being. And how did the process of writing this book come about for you? What inspired you to write it? So I'm really interested about the role of identities and values and how they inform the kind of foreign policies of countries and the kind of outlooks of countries. Um, And I'm really interested about states kind of experiences and precedents, but also perceptions about how the world is or how they would like the world to be. Um, And I've applied those ideas before to other countries and other ideas. So I've applied those ideas to both India and China, actually, about great power in terms of how they imagine themselves as great powers or how we imagine the kind of term great power and what it's meant across time and across history. So that was the kind of conceptual starting point. And then just thinking about China itself, again, it's rising rapidly. People think it's going to rule the world or affect the world or there's this huge shift that's happening in global politics. And then thinking, well, if, there's, if they've got conceptions about their own identity, conceptions about great power, what are their conceptions about world order? And also beyond that, think about China's history, where it was kind of the centre of a kind of regional order for centuries and centuries and centuries. So trying to think about what that meant and what it means in a, in a modern context. Um, and then beyond that as well, particularly writing it and particularly writing it at the beginning of the pandemic, noticing more and more authoritarianism just coming out in domestic politics, seeing that states are having to say things to themselves such as, would we have a lockdown? Would we allow people to congregate? Would we allow them to have their kind of basic freedoms? And we saw those things being restricted everywhere, everywhere across the West, the UK definitively, the US, but also in India, and just kind of thinking about this kind of wider convergence. So. Those were the major inspirations, yeah. 
Yeah, it's a very interesting time for all this happening. And I think it makes it a really interesting time for this book to come out as well. Uh, um, I absolutely was fascinated by you talking about that. And I think the preface of the introduction to the book. Um, and what's diving straight into one of the big questions, <laughs> what do you consider to be the definition of authoritarianism as you consider it in the book? And how does it relate to concepts like uh, um, totalitarianism and how does it differ, if anything, from democracy? Yeah, also, so this is also a big driving force for this book. So in previous research, I've looked at like, what does great power mean? Because often people just throw that around as though we all know what that means. But actually, it's massively contested. And I would say it's pretty much the same with authoritarianism and world order. We just throw these terms around. Um, my kind of core definition is a type of government based upon strong central authority and limited political freedoms would be the kind of core definition of authoritarianism. Within that, the kind of major factors are a lack of political pluralism. So maybe there's one party in charge or one kind of head figure in charge. Beyond that, rule of law isn't really there. It's more rule by law. So those in charge use the judiciary as a form of political kind of subordination. They use it as a political tool um, rather than it being transparent and kind of a means of accountability for those in charge. On top of that, a moribund civil society. So where people find it very difficult to articulate what they want and they have very limited rights in terms of assembly, speech, so on and so forth. Obvious one on top of that would be kind of lack of elections or lack of universal suffrage. So there's no voice for everybody. And then the additional factor I'd added was a kind of high surveillance society, um, high degrees of government surveillance, and again, using this as a form of um, control. Where it varies from democracy and totalitarianism is, is I try to think about all of these things being on a kind of spectrum or a continuum. So often a lot of writers would say, well, either you're democratic or you're authoritarian, but I would say actually, you can be a democracy with authoritarian kind of possibilities or proclivities, and you could also be an authoritarian state also with domestic possibilities. So it's kind of like a sliding scale in different ways. So if you're a democracy, I would say you don't have any of those things that I mentioned before. So you have political pluralism, you're very much rule of law, there is an active social civil society out there. There are regular elections, there's regular kind of representation. Um, you, maybe less surveillance, but I think, I don't know, that, that's a kind of kind of, kind of I don't know, cherry on the top, as it were, I think, for authoritarianism in a way. And then if you think of that as a scale, kind of one end, that's that pure kind of democracy. And if you move across the scale, more authoritarianism. And if you move even further the other way, then you're getting to complete totalitarianism, which means complete control of everything that you do. And this is how China was in the 1950s and 60s under Mao. And by total control, I mean things such as you are told where you live, what you do, what you earn, you need permission to marry, you need permission to have children. Everything is provided by the state, but there's complete kind of monolithic control on everything you do to the degree that even the way you're kind of thinking is, is controlled. So that, those would be the big differences. Um, and then I think one important context in this book is, is all those factors I mentioned 
I would say if any of those are being weakened, that is evidence of authoritarianism. That is evidence of democratic backsliding, kind of, again, moving across that continuum more towards authoritarian um, proclivities. Fabulous. That was a really great summary. Yeah, and I think that kind of muddying of the waters between democracy and authoritarianism, definitely a theme that you return to throughout the book and is incredibly interesting to see how you um, uh, explain that and explore that, especially in relation to the US potentially, <laughs> but we can come back to that later. Yeah. Um, I think the first few chapters of your book trace the political and historical events that have forged China's political system today. Could you perhaps summarize a few key aspects of this that relate to the discussion in your book? Well, I mean, the, the big things are, is that China is definitely authoritarian. Mm. Um, and it's been authoritarian in different forms for the last couple of thousand years. So uh, up until really kind of end of the end of the 19th century or so, domination by an emperor, one single kind of figure in a hierarchical structure, they're at the top and they kind of, they rule over everybody else. There, there are no kind of democratic representations. People can complain, people are represented, but it's not democracy in the way that we would kind of see it. The CCP comes in in the middle of the 20th century, 1949, after their revolution, communist revolution, and they continue those processes. It's them, they're in charge. There's other groupings that are around, but they're always sanctioned. Um, politically, trade unions are sanctioned. Um, other organisations are also sanctioned in different ways. So really, it's a, that's a kind of core, kind of the core political sense of China's authoritarian. On top of that, though, the CCP is very keen to re restore China's status. So there's this big phenomenon in China called the century of humiliation, which is the period from the beginning of the 1800s to when the CCP emerges in power, where they say that China's status has been debased. And this is the period where countries such as Britain, but also Germany and others come to China, they take land, they take concessions, and they basically drop down its status in international relations and regionally. And the CCP want to restore this. They want to restore the status and they want stability, they want certainty. And the way that they want to do that is helped by their authoritarian um, kind of basis. Now, over time, they've, they've changed the way that they've done it. So Mao was very much all about ideology. He was about the mass line, use everyone all together. That's how you kind of create the revolution. But this ends in failure. There's an event called the Cultural Revolution um, in the 1960s and 70s, where there's just a kind of ideological overzealousness, and it results in mass chaos across um, China and, and millions of deaths in different ways. And the party under his successor, Deng, realises that they can kind of shift the direction of the revolution away from ideology, but more towards kind of material growth, but without the political liberalisation. So this is where China introduces its market economy. It's still heavily controlled by the CCP at the beginning, but they kind of relinquish control a bit over time, kind of gradually. So it remains authoritarian, but liberally economic. And then they've kind of combined those two things together um, to drive them to the place where they are now, where they've kind of kept themselves, they've kind of kept their political integrity, but opened themselves up to the world and benefited from that materially and used that to kind of boost their overall status. 
um, and importance in international affairs. Great. And um, going back to your definition of authoritarianism and the different um, aspects of that, what aspects of China today that have evolved out of these historical events that you've described show it to be an authoritarian state? So definitively, as I mentioned before, the domination of the, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. So it's, it's definitely a one party state. Um, there are not elections in the way that we would consider elections. So it is possible to vote in a village election in China. Um, but it's a kind of inverted democracy. So if you're in a village, you would vote for somebody and then those individuals would then vote for other people kind of higher, higher and up the scale until you kind of get to the top of the party. So it's not that's a kind of inversion of how Western democracy works, where we all vote for one person and obviously isn't truly representative. Also, the CCP kind of controls all the cards, so they control the candidates, the voting process, the results, so on and so forth. So it's definitely skewed in that way. On top of that, they use rule by law to reinforce their viewpoint. So there are not structures that are fully transparent or holding the government fully to account. And again, they use that as a way to control the opposition, um, opposition voices, opposition forces in different ways. So that's also definitively authoritarian. On top of that, too, there are highly limited zones in terms of, say, freedom of speech, representation, association. There are trade unions in China. This is quite interesting. Actually, there are millions of trade unions in China, but they are always very focused or NGOs rather there's millions of those very focused on local issues. So they have a very atomized view of society. They don't want there to be national NGOs kind of all linked up together for one cause. You can kind of fight against, I don't know, environmental pollution in your village, but you won't be a member of a national body. So splitting up that expression and on top of that, a high degree of state surveillance, high degrees of monitoring of the internet and things such as a thing called the social credit system, uh, where people are kind of given an evaluation in terms of how loyal they are and how loyal they are then indicates their access to particular resources. And that could mean access to loans, mortgages, the right to go to university, even travel dependent on your kind of ranking within that system. And where that's most clearly shown in, is in Xinjiang and Tibet by high degrees of control against the Muslim minority and really a kind of total lockdown for those people in those areas in terms of their movements or all kind of, you have to have like an app on your phone that tells the state where you're going, but even controls in terms of people being banned having beards, banned having kind of Muslim Uyghur names, all of these these kind of degrees so i think definitively authoritarian um and certainly under the current president that kind of space for expression which in a way was i would say increasing in the 90s and the noughties is contracted there's a higher degree of control and a higher degree of kind of attacking anybody who's um supporting alternative ideas or attacking the ccp um in different ways I think you gave a few good examples of things that had been banned that, um, you know, were quite amusing when you read them, but probably also quite scary. Yeah, there are, there are some quite strange ones. There are some strange ones. So Winnie the Pooh's banned. Um, he's banned because um, he looks a lot, a lot like Xi Jinping, uh, which shows a lot of the degree of kind of sensitivity of some of these leaders. 
1984 is banned. That seems kind of an obvious thing to ban. Um, Peppa Pig's also banned, interestingly, because that's meant to um, apparently encourage some kind of slacker culture, uh, which the CCP doesn't want amongst its population. I mean, I would say one very interesting thing about the surveillance is, is that often it's about understanding what people are talking about and maybe trying to respond to what people are talking about and their concerns rather than kind of blanket censorship. So the, the blanket censorship will come in at particular points, but overall it's more to kind of garner this sense of what's happening. And I think one important thing to recognise with China is that the CCP does need some form of legitimacy. So it's not just complete control. Like there is, people are able to express themselves materially. They are able to gain things in those domains. And that's how the CCP gets its legitimacy and also maybe in a kind of moral legitimacy in particular ways. Um, so there is a kind of push pull. But the big thing is, is that the CCP has all the levers so they can decide to do these kinds of things. They can censor a word, you know, at one go. They can they can control things in different ways. Brilliant. And I think this kind of leads nicely on something else that I wanted to ask you about, which is how much I was struck by the Confucian philosophies and concepts that underpin China's identity and worldview, especially those notions around harmony and all under heaven. And some of them sound on the face of it, you know, kind of to to, to seem um, almost the opposite of an authoritarian outlook. Can you describe the main Confucian ideas and how they translate into China's authoritarian state today? Yeah, so the, the really big idea, and this has kind of been like refound from history. So interestingly, Mao wasn't so much into Confucianism, but I think she and people around him, they've become more interested in it in a way, because I think it links modern China back to kind of ancient China. And some of the kind of social practices or ways of doing things then are as applicable now, um, not just within China, but also the way that the kind of region looks at China. Um, so the kind of really big idea is that that China's this is ideas and Xinjiang, like everything's all under heaven. And all under heaven means that the emperor's at the top of the system. The system's highly paternalistic. It's highly hierarchical and is based upon key principles of loyalty, reciprocity and interdependence. And that the kind of better that the person at the top rules, um, the better the fortunes of China. So interestingly, across China's history, there are examples where China experiences an earthquake and the population says this is indicative of kind of bad moral leadership from up by. So again, it's the sense of needing legitimacy in different ways. Um, on top of that, there's this idea of great national unity. You pull everyone together through this kind of this structure. And as you mentioned, the idea of harmony. But really, I think the idea of harmony is, is that you harmonize the population towards the viewpoint or will of the person in charge. But again, in the hope that this structure creates stability, certainty, and through that kind of wealth for the population and status for China overall. Yeah, really interesting. And I think maybe we'll return to some of those concepts as we carry on. Um, Another key theme that you explore is how Western democracy itself is being eroded um, so that the behaviours and actions of other supposedly democratic countries are now exhibiting authoritarian traits. Could you give some examples of this? 
Yes, I mean, I mentioned earlier about COVID it is one solid example where I think states were suddenly confronted by what it meant to be democratic and also what it meant to control the population when necessary. Um, I think there, there are plenty of examples all, all over, really. Um, in the UK, there are now strong anti-protest laws that if the police determine that a protest is too noisy, it can just be shut down. This obviously cuts down on kind of freedom of protest, freedom of expression. Um, there are newly introduced voter ID laws in the UK, um, which were introduced due to allegations of voter fraud. Um, the thing with compulsory voter ID is that it's immediately disenfranchised about 3 million people who don't have a driver's license or a passport, which is what you now need to go and vote. Um, and this was done in response to, I think there's only be, ever been six prosecutions for voter fraud, um, at least on the last election. So again, that's kind of disenfranchising a portion of the population. There's also plenty of evidence of ministers in the UK kind of making their own laws in the sense of sidestepping um, Parliament. So some listeners might have heard about um, Henry VIII powers, for example, as a reaction to Brexit that ministers just said, well, there's so many laws to make, I'll just make them because it's kind of more efficient. But again, that sidestepping kind of due process. And then also other events such as kind of castigating the judiciary as being enemies of the people uh, because they said there should be due oversight of Brexit or suggesting that maybe uh, proroguing parliament was illegal. I think these are all kind of elements of authoritarianism in different ways. Looking at other states, certainly the US under Trump, I think also show clear signs of authoritarianism. His attacks on the media, his threats of violence against individuals. In contemporary America, there's also rising political violence and rising violence against law enforcement um, officers. You could also definitely see, say, the capital attacks after the last US election. That is one group of people disputing the result of that election and then wanting to overturn it to their own ends. I think we will see that again in the midterms in America. We will see it again with the election result where I think a large proportion of the population and those in charge will dispute the results. And again, the, the kind of peaceful transition or peaceful succession uh, between different political groups is meant to be an indication of democracy and I suggest that that's not there. Also very interesting about the US as well is the kind of general politicisation of judicial appointments. So kind of loading the Supreme Court with people who represent your political viewpoint. What's very interesting there is, is that Trump is often mentioned as someone who did this a lot in terms of the number of appointments, but actually three of his predecessors actually appointed more people in this way. So that includes people like Obama. Uh, Bush, Clinton, they appointed more people. So I think the, the sense there is more kind of that democracy is a kind of uneven playing field. And on top of that as well, you could kind of add corporate donations. You know, the, the average person in America does not have the average say, like the kind of more money you have, that's definitely putting some kind of twist on American democracy. And then beyond that too, the other kind of world's largest democracy in India, um, has a Hindu nationalist party in charge who are openly attacking minorities. They're also politicizing the courts. There's high degrees of state censorship. They are banning huge numbers of indigenous and external NGOs. 
and also showing all of these kind of proclivities. Again, it's not maybe on the on the kind of scale or size of China, but again, I would say think about the continuum. There's this backsliding that's a pushing towards authoritarianism. Um, and interestingly, recently the US and India actually they reviewed or deemed by Freedom House to be flawed democracies. So they are starting to slide down that scale. And I would suggest that the UK will probably get a similar kind of rating quite soon. You start to slide down that, then you start to get into kind of elected autocracies. That's kind of where Russia is. And then you're moving into like full kind of autocracies where China is. So, and I mean, it, th those are just a few examples. You could think about Hungary, you could think about Brazil, you could think about the Philippines. There are, there's plenty of it going on all over the place, really. And a general contraction of rights uh, and a contraction of democracy overall, I would say. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think somewhere you you describe it as a kind of de democratic recession. And I think there's a statistic in the book somewhere that, correct me if I'm wrong, something about 7% 7, 7 of the world <laughs> is true to democracies at the moment. Yeah, it's something, it's something like 8.4% 8, 8 of the world's population lives in a truly functioning democracy, which is just astoundingly shocking. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so in this stage comes China, um, and in the book you outline how China has pursued a route on this world stage that's led to it being one of the most successful players in the international order, especially economically. And this in itself has spread the attractiveness of a kind of authoritarian capitalism to other countries. Um, what do you consider to be the main features of this ascent? So the biggest driver from the 70s onwards is embracing liberal market economics, but also using China's size. And the rest of the system was aware of this. So the, the US has a rapprochement with, with China in the early 1970s. Primarily, I think at that stage to balance out against the Soviet Union, but I think leaders such as Nixon recognized, well, first of all, it was good to have China in the room, but China has this huge untapped potential huge amounts of resources, huge potential markets. It can produce things really cheaply and the rest of the world can give it all the kind of commodities, raw, raw materials that it needs. This, for want of a better phrase, kind of supercharges their rise. So from the middle of the 70s for about the next 30 odd years, they're averaging 10% growth per year, which is unprecedented in any, any modern state. Um, and also that, that's why we're kind of talking about China so much. So I think there's that, that, that kind of push pull in a way. China wanted to use economic growth, the CCP wanted to use that for legitimacy, but the rest of the world also saw those benefits. And then over time, China's slowly been converting that economic power into other kinds of power, military power, military prowess, but also building different institutions. So it's built things such as the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, so kind of a, like a, a challenger to the IMF or the World Bank. It's built another organization called the Shanghai Corporation Organization, which is kind of a challenger, kind of to NATO, even kind of to the UN in a particular way. And that rise, the, the major big thing about the rise is, is that the West thought the liberal international model of their order meant that you would liberalize economically. And when that got to a particular stage, the population would clamour for political rights and that would liberalise a country politically. 
What China's been able to do is, is basically say, you can rise economically, you can become exceptionally rich, but not liberalize politically. So they've broken that mold or that understanding of how the liberal international or the one introduced by the West works. And basically you're going, look, there's an alternative. And that alternative is this authoritarian capitalist model. You can remain autocratic, yet you can develop. And that is exceptionally um, significant for a whole range of developing states across the world, particularly ones who, do, who are not interested in democracy, but need legitimacy. Um, and that's, so that's a direct challenge to the West, but also I would say is highly attractive. Um, and the, the book leading on from that, the book repeatedly returns to the concept of a kind of stealthy assimilation. So not of China into the world order, but of the world order into China's way of doing things, which I think is what you were uh, alluding to. Um, and you use the thought experiment of the ship of Theseus in the book, which is a really interesting one. Um, can you explain this idea? Yes, yeah, so the reason that came about, actually that came about through one of my students in the tutorial, which I thought was a fantastic thing, is that often again, like we were mentioning earlier about kind of it's democracy or authoritarianism, right? And often people think, well, we're in this order or this way of doing stuff, and then it will just change one day and flip over to this other order. But first of all, again, thinking about that continuum, it's much more com complicated than that. You can be democratic and authoritarian at the same time. And for China, they can sometimes appear to be benefiting from the current system, which some observers would say, well, that means the system won't change. So they're in the liberal economic kind of part of it. But obviously in other parts, they're not. They're not in the democratic side of it. So it's a way to try and conceptualize that kind of continuity and change as occurring at the same time. So that thought experiment says that there's this boat, um, it's, it's put into a museum and it's very old and rotting, but the boat is kind of, uh, the upkeep is, is maintained. So every so often a bit of the boat is replaced like a plank on the, on the a stern or wherever it is. And it's replaced and replaced over time until it's made of completely new material. And then the thought, the thought experiment is, is it still the original boat? It looks like the boat, but it's comprised of new material. And I think that this is a nice way of thinking about China's kind of rise and assimilation kind of into the existing world order, but they're kind of counter assimilation back where they're kind of replacing planks of that boat. They produce new institutions or they produce new understandings and that the order itself will end up changing but it'll basically be much more kind of China-centric, China-inspired, authoritarian kind of centric. So that was the idea of using the ship of Theseus. And I would also say it's, it's, it's a kind of a warning to all of us to think as well that, again, we won't wake up and suddenly we'll be told we don't live in a democracy, it's an authoritarian state. It will happen slowly and by stealth. And then we'll wake up and realise that, oh, actually, we don't have rights to go and, you know, protest about X, Y, Z, or we, we don't, I don't know, have workers' rights, or we need to work at the weekend, all of these kinds of things, that it will gradually come. So that, that was the kind of idea. Um, and I think it's quite a good analogy, you know, um, because it, it suggests, again, it's not like tectonic change that you can see directly, like in, in one event, but it's something that you need to kind of keep on top of. 
And the other side of it as well is, is that we should remember that the existing liberal, liberal international order actually does contain quite a lot of authoritarianism in it. So in a weird way, the US wanting to be the hegemon, to be the number one state, actually, I would argue, is quite authoritarian because it's quite anti-pluralistic, right? Think about the kind of war on terror, 9-11, you're with us, you're against us. It's, it's very much this or that. There's kind of a no, there's no choice. Also, people who strongly adhere to neoliberalism and globalization, and there are plenty of quotes about this in the book, say, this is how it is. This is the natural state of things, again, suggesting there's no alternative. And beyond that, too, we should also remember that the US over time has replaced multiple democratic regimes with regimes that it's favoured, which has often led to them being highly authoritarian. So I think, you know, actually some of the existing planks of the shipper thesis for the existing order were authoritarian anyway. And China's maybe just adding other ones that kind of fulfil that kind of passage, as it were. Yeah, and leading on from that, you say, I think, um, quite a lot about this concept of harmony when um, China enters the world stage and in its relations with other countries and how that contrasts then to what America has been doing in spreading the ideology of a liberal democracy throughout the world. Can you just speak to that point a little? Yeah, so I, th I think fundamentally, like there's a couple of things that China has to do. It rises so quickly that it needs narratives to try and explain what's happening. So it has internal and external narratives about kind of a charm offensive or a kind of gentle, gradual, soft power rise. So it doesn't want to appear as a threat and it would like the world to kind of have a harmonious and stable existence because the more that that happens, the more it can develop and modernize internally, which I think is the key driving force for the Communist Party. So we should remember that they've pulled hundreds of millions of people out of poverty and they would like to keep that going. They'd like to keep that um, legitimacy um, going in particular ways. And then so on top of that, I think one really interesting thing that comes out in the book is that China's view of the world and the kind of order that it would like is, is quite passive in the way that it wants to achieve it. So certainly the US and its leaders are very much about well, democratic world order, we're going to force the order to happen, we're going to use military force, we're going to use economic force, we're going to force kind of liberalisation. And you see regularly US leaders standing up and saying, we should be democratic, the system should be democratic. I don't think China will ever do that. I, don't, I can never conceive of a leader standing up and saying, we want more autocracy. But what China does do is by its success shows that that's a viable alternative and shows that that is attractive to other states. And the more that it does that, and the more that other states kind of adhere to those principles, the more that authoritarianism spreads through the system. And it doesn't need to push it or force it. The other side of it too is, is that China doesn't, I would say that China doesn't want to rule the world to be number one. They want to be one of a kind of handful of big states. So they don't feel a need to have to actually dominate that kind of discourse in the way that the US did. But again, harmony is crucial to all of this. And the harmony really means China really has a kind of live and live, live attitude, actually, weirdly. It doesn't mind if there are democracies, but what it does mind if other states tell it what to do. It minds if they don't give it recognition and they don't give it status. That's what they fundamentally want more than anything. 
They want to be left alone. They want to be no interference in their internal politics. And they want, yeah, they want that status to be recognised more than anything. Interesting. So towards the end of the book, you present a few pretty bleak scenarios for the future, which explore various versions of an authoritarian century. What are those and which do you think are most likely? Um, there, there are a couple that are definitely very bleak. I read them earlier. Um, so there's, there's three scenarios that I outline. One, one is competent US demagogue. Um, in this one, um, Trump or somebody like Trump returns to power and they return to power with a vengeance. So all those kind of inklings of authoritarianism that we saw in the first kind of Trump presidency, they are completely turbocharged. So that means he doesn't just attack the, the media, he imprisons the media, he completely politicizes the judiciary, he completely disassembles any sense of there being uh, democracy um, or elections. Um, and in some ways, if you read enough things that Republicans say or look at enough polls in America, in a way that seems on balance a possibility. I would say certainly with the next election, I think the Republicans will say that they've won regardless of what the result is, uh, and regardless of that kind of um, upheaval. Beyond that, another possibility that I mentioned was, a, uh, I call it a global panopticon. And I think this is actually a very interesting convergence. And the convergence there is of kind of big tech technology in general and surveillance. So we can definitely see in China how those things are used by the CCP to control the population. And interestingly, those things are prevalent in the West, those technologies, and sometimes actually even do decide people's possibilities. You know, you try and get a mortgage, you will be credit checked. If you, even for entry into universities in the US, it still will work in that way that there'll be algorithms a kind of algorith algorithmic governance kind of determining what is possible for you in particular ways. On top of that, big tech is also kind of propagating extremism and misinformation. And in a way, again, it's kind of replicating other things that are happening within the system. So I think it is conceivable, again, if you had an authoritarian minded leader, that they would try to embrace that technology to perpetuate themselves um, in control. Then the final possibility I mentioned was an Asian century. Now, I think that this will happen. I, th and I think this is, this is already happening. Most economic growth, most military spending, most kind of institution building is in Asia. And you can take a very wide definition of Asia. So it can be China, India, Japan, as well as the US as a kind of Asia Pacific power and even Russia. Most power is concentrated there. Most of those states are becoming more authoritarian. And I think that that will kind of consecrate a, a kind of authoritarian future. It points to a Western decline. And even weirdly, beyond all of that, China might even collapse. But I think they'll have inspired a kind of authoritarian um, future. So kind of bleak, but I think there are also possibilities. As I mentioned before, you, it's still possible to live in a democracy, and we should remember that about the liberal international order. As much as we say it's a, it's a world order, there were huge swathes of the world that weren't within that order. China wasn't in it, India wasn't in it, Russia wasn't in it, most of Africa wasn't in it. So it doesn't necessarily mean everybody lives under those circumstances. It's more what's the prevailing understanding or the prevailing understanding of the most kind of dominant um, powers in different ways. 
So I think there is there is hope. There's a very nice quote from Obama in the book about democracy is a garden that needs to be tended. And I think that actually, like to counter out the bleakness, I think this is the thing that is most needed actually, is that we need to have better, we need to be better educated about where all our rights came come from. So I mentioned earlier about, you know, we might end up working at the weekend or not working, I don't know, a 35 hour week, but we need to remember why we don't work those things. And that's because people protested and, and fought for those rights and gained those rights. And all those rights need to be protected. Rights for, for the ability to protest, for free speech, association, human rights, all of these things need to be fought for. And I think the fundamental thing is that most people, I would say, are not aware of, of where they've come from. And I think there's a deep responsibility for, I don't know, people like myself kind of writing about these things, but I would say broadcasters, politicians, any kind of leader in any field to start producing things that educates the population about where these things came from. Because definitively for most of us, regardless of where we live, our rights are contracting and they will keep on contracting. And I think the more authoritarian a state and government becomes, just the easier it is to kind of keep that contraction going. And I think there needs to be a, there needs to be a counterforce. And that counterforce is, is awareness uh, and information. And again, kind of spiraling back to big tech, you know, they're spreading a lot of misinformation. Um, and really, they need to clean up that side of things. Otherwise, they themselves are helping to propagate this authoritarian future. Um, what would you say you would like to come out of the writing of this book? I just think a bit of a bit of awareness, but kind of critical mindedness. Um, just, I mean, it, 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 my book is definitely kind of very broad, sweeping, thinking about the kind of world that we'll live in. But I also think that the experience that we've all had in the last couple of years clearly resonates with these bigger trends. I think just this awareness, but also being more critical when we hear things. When leaders say X, Y, Z, like what are they getting at? Or when legislation comes in or is, is proposed, what will that mean? And again, to just consider, do we want to kind of sleepwalk into a kind of mass surveillance state and then wake up and realize that there's nothing we can do about it? Or would we like to try and reverse that and try and do something about it now and at least protect what we have? And, you know, question things such as why are my rights kind of contracting? Why are they not expanding? When was the last time we were given more rights or more representation or more say? And, and what's fundamentally wrong with that? Um, and I think often, and I think at the moment, a lot of people feel like they lack a lot of agency. There are a lot of very powerful forces in the world. And I think the more agency that people have, it's better for them better for their kind of security but I think it's better for society full stop I think that, that's how we produce something that's better and particularly in terms of better conversations more consensus building and certainly I think Britain to a degree but certainly say look at the US and look at India there's a shutting down of opposing views you know people are in their silos people just don't want to hear the other side but I think if we keep going down that road I think quite frankly so yeah, I think this, this sense of empowerment, I think is important. I think it's beneficial to everybody. Is there anything you didn't get to put in the book that you wanted to, or in, in hindsight, wish you had? So authoritarianism is blossoming. 
So I did initially want to say maybe have more about the EU because um, that's cause the, the big thing about kind of thinking about the US, India, the UK, Russia is that they're all very big powers. So that's the kind of the thing about if they're becoming more authoritarian, that confirms that China's kind of worldview is also as a great power will kind of normalize. And I think the EU is one very big block. And within the EU, there's also growing authoritarianism. But then I looked at the EU and I looked elsewhere and I realized it became kind of endless. So I kind of kept that focus. But I think overall, very happy. I mean, it covers a lot of things. World order in general, current world order, future world order, China's rise, but I think kind of highly topical and highly timely. So yeah, I'm happy. Flicking back through, I was very, very happy. Great. Um, and what's next for you, Chris, in terms of your research in this field? So I'm really interested about rising Asia and I'm really interested about rising China, but also rising India. And thinking about India's on a similar kind of trajectory to China, but maybe 20 to 30 years behind. And just thinking about how India looks at the world. Um, so I've kind of got an idea about India being a kind of paradoxical great power. And the kind of the kind of launch pad for that is, is that in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, many observers in the West just thought, well, India's a democracy, so they'll be on board with us. But actually, India is far closer to Russia than it is with the West historically. So just trying to think about that's a that's a big paradox in our understanding of India. Or again, we think of India as the world's largest democracy, but they're becoming increasingly authoritarian. So trying to think about those aspects um, and then more fundamentally than that, trying to think about if India was ever to overtake China and become kind of the leading contender, um, how would the rest of the world respond? Because often the biggest power sees the rising power as the big threat. But if it's India, which is meant to be the world's largest democracy, how is the West meant to deal with that? That's going to be a big kind of conceptual issue. So, yeah, those things. And I'll, I'll see how I get on. Oh, well, I look forward to reading a book on that in the not too distant future, hopefully. Thank you, Chris. It's been a delight to talk to you today. Thank, Thank you for you coming on the Transforming Society podcast. Thanks again.